I V M. Here's a little tidbit we may have neglected to shout from the rooftops enough on feeding 10 billion yet. As of 2021, meat cultivated directly from chicken cells instead of raising and slaughtering chickens is available for sale on planet Earth. It's a hugely promising smart protein innovation that does away with the need for raising and slaughtering animals and the huge quantities of land, water, greenhouse gas emissions, antibiotic use and pandemics risk that all entails. But of course, people still need to wrap their heads around the concept. What sounded like science fiction not too long ago, even while we were chatting with innovators like Sandhya Shriram of Shiok Meats and Ryan Bethencourt of IndieBio on Feeding 10 Billion Seasons 1 and 2, is now very much a reality. Singapore became the first country in the world to allow the sale of cultivated meat in December 2020 to San Francisco-based company Eat Just Inks Cultivated Chicken Bites. If you're in Singapore, you can get them at the 1880 Social Club, at the high-end restaurant Madame Fan, or even for home delivery on Food Panda. Of course, there's a long way to go yet. Research we've done at the Good Food Institute, along with CE Delft in the Netherlands, shows that cultivated meat produced using renewable energy will be far better than conventional meat productions on all the essential environmental indicators we all care about. But it will take until the end of this decade, at least, to drive down costs so that we reach price parity with conventional meat. That's where visionary multi-stakeholder partnerships like the X Prize Feed the Next Billion come in. The $15 million prize will help advance technology and drive down costs globally, so that we can get game-changing cultivated meat to every plate around the world at every level of the socio-economic pyramid. On this episode of Feeding 10 Billion, Season 2.5, we're talking to a global expert in cellular agriculture and a technical expert for X Prize Feed the Next Billion, and she'll tell us more about the competition and the science of cultivated meat. Dr. Kate Kruger is a founder of Helicon Consulting, where she partners with visionary scientists and entrepreneurs to develop their technical strategy. She combines a broad perspective on the academic and industrial landscape of cultivated meat and high-tech food with deep expertise in protein biochemistry and cell biology. Kate is former research director at New Harvest, the first non-profit organization dedicated entirely to cellular agriculture. Before New Harvest, Kate worked on science at Perfect Day Foods, the first precision fermentation company to make milk proteins without the cow. Kate holds a PhD in cell biology from Yale University and is passionate about using technology for the betterment of society. I'm Varun Deshpande and you're listening to Feeding 10 Billion. Kate, let's start with a very simple question about technology and food. Firstly, thank you for being here with us on Feeding 10 Billion. You're a global expert on the applications of synthetic biology and the allied areas such as cellular agriculture and food. You've served as a leader at New Harvest and you continue to do so. You're a technical leader with the X Prize and you've done a lot of pioneering work advancing cellular agriculture over the last decade. But many would say that technology in food is not the way the world should move. That we should instead return to our pastoral kind of traditional agricultural roots. Now given the challenge of feeding the next billion which the X Prize and all of us are collectively taking on, Could you offer some perspective on why technology in food is even necessary and why it's an an enabler a key enabler for better future? I told you it's a very simple question. 
Definitely. So as you stated, it's really important that we take seriously the challenge of feeding more and more people as time goes on. Population is clearly growing in many parts of the world, and it's very important that we're able to feed all the people that need adequate nutrition around the world. In general, when people think about ways of feeding more and more people, they tend to fall into two different categories. One category is to use traditional means to a greater extent, reduce food waste, increase output, either by planting more trees or fruits or vegetables. And while that's really important and definitely one way forward, the other wrestling concern with that that people often think about is how to use technology to use what we have more efficiently and to transform the system rather than reduce our consumption or reduce our standard ways of operating. So instead of thinking about eating less meat, for instance, we can think about eating meat, but eating meat through different means through technology, for instance. And that's what Feeding the Next Billion is really about, is the idea that we could use technology to allow people to eat meat at the rate they eat today or even more without having the negative consequences on the environment, the economy, or various other types of access issues that we currently have with meat today. Yeah, that makes complete sense, Kate. And of course, some of these things are in some sense, we don't even have a choice, right? Because despite all the, the things that you alluded to, instead of telling people to eat less meat, that's an approach that, that's been tried over the last decades. That's been, you know, these consequences have been known for decades and things haven't changed. In fact, demand for meat is going up drastically. Now, in terms of access, in particular, you've written about a topic that's a key piece of our mission at GFI India, that is locating the promise of alternative protein within the context of the developing world and enabling that access. Vulnerable populations, usually in the developing world, are by definition hit hardest by severe crises like climate change, food insecurity, etc. So could you talk a little bit about what needs to happen to help that proliferation happen uh, into the developing world? Definitely. So to your point, the developing world has a lot to gain potentially for the new technologies. As you stated, for food security reasons, for access reasons, for reasonable pricing, on top of some of the recent concerns around disease transmission, which plague the entire world. So as we see with COVID-19 now, the passing of various pathogens from animals to people is very, very dangerous. And the greater the amount of animal agriculture, the more this spread can occur. So many, many good reasons to use this new technology to make our world a better place, not just in the first world or one part of the world, but the entire world. Some of the challenges associated with making that happen are price point for one and technological complexity for another. So right now, these products are extremely expensive, even in the first world contexts where they're oftentimes in development, only a handful of people have tried many of the cell-based products, for instance. However, with growing production, it's likely that those costs will go down. Making sure that the infrastructure is in place such that the costs can go down around the world is going to be another challenge. But I think it's a challenge we are going to be able to face successfully in the coming years. Yeah, and that brings us, I think, to the X Prize, Feed the Next Billion Prize, right? So this is, we're taking on the challenge of advancing food technology, and we're all kind of 
undertaking this exciting journey over the next four years together. So could you tell us a little bit about what you're hoping to see happen from this competition and what solutions as a global expert in cellular agriculture, what kinds of solutions do you hope to see? Definitely. So one of the wonderful things about Feeding the Next Billion is that it covers a number of challenges and hurdles that cellular agriculture, cell-based meat, and the alternative meat space in general are currently faced with. So in general, it's really hard to come across products that are nutritionally equivalent or as healthy as standard meat products that also are cost-effective, positively impact the environment, have reasonable price point, and also that replicate foods people are used to around the world. So that it does involve ground meat products, but it also involves full cuts of meat. So steaks, fillets, cutlets, and full meat servings directly from animal-derived tissues that could be replicated in, say, a lab or other food context. So that's the challenge that XPRIZE really takes on, is not just to address one of these challenges or to make a cheaper burger, but to actually transform the food system by creating these what are called structured products like steaks or cutlets at a reasonable price point with all of these positive impacts to humans and the environment. Yeah, and I love that you talked about kind of the different environments in which those products could be produced. And I think when we're talking about feeding the next billion, Kate, I think one of the major challenges will be how production takes place in the developing world as well, right? So, I mean, we're talking about maybe some infrastructure challenges, even things like energy requirements for some of these newer technologies. These are not insurmountable problems, but I think we need a lot of scientific talent and investment devoted to solving those problems within the developing world context as well. So that's why it's really exciting to see this XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion Prize, this competition, taking on this challenge. And I'm personally hoping to see a diversity of solutions that emerge from different parts of the world that are kind of maybe fit for purpose in those different parts of the world. So Agreed. No, yeah, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, please, please. Go yeah, ahead. I mean, to that end, I think one of the exciting things is by bringing in competitors from around the world. We get unique viewpoints on this. And also, I think we'll be able to capitalize on some of the unique expertise and constraints that teams around the world have. So for instance, if a standard electrical grid isn't in place, it's possible that teams may be able to harness solar or wind power to create self-sustaining factories or lab setups. It's also possible that various countries might be able to use non-arable land or land that can't currently have animals grazing, et cetera, for those facilities. So those are a couple of the areas where I'm really excited about the potential for this technology to go beyond current capabilities. Yeah, it's really fascinating, really promising stuff. You mentioned the teams and the diversity of talent as well, right? So I'd like to expand on the idea of kind of multidisciplinary talent and how it impacts the growth of a new field like alternative protein or smart protein more generally, but let's focus in on cultivated meat. Now you, Kate, you have a PhD in cell biology from Yale, which is of course squarely within what the average person might envisage is needed within cellular agriculture is cell biology. But what kinds of other disciplines can contribute here? Like how does, you know, how does a diversity of disciplines, and I think also how does a diversity of, you know, scientific, geographic, even demographic, ethnic, diversity? How does that build better, more useful, more resilient talent pools and systems in this new sector? Definitely. So there are so many amazing things you hit on there because the beauty of 
this time and place in food development is that we've been able to take some amazing food systems and then add all the scientific gains that have been made in the past hundred years to this new food space when before they were restricted to biomedical research and other clinical types of applications. So as a globe, we had all this really advanced technology that had not been applied outside of this tiny, tiny context. And within the last five to 10 years, that's just enormously grown, which has been really exciting. And what that means is all of a sudden, many, many different types of expertise become relevant. People that specialize in pharmacology, for instance, could be very relevant to this space. Material sciences, individuals who have more chemistry backgrounds, engineers, all these different types of people that you'd never think might work in a food context are suddenly really, really useful and really important to the development of these new products. And to your point about different countries and different populations, that's been another really exciting thing that I feel like we've seen in recent, even months and years, which is different parts of the world have different food products that are near and dear to their hearts. And so because of that, we see the development of very different products around the world. There are a couple companies in Australia, for instance, that are growing products that involve kangaroo or local populations. There's also a group that's making traditional meats from Spain, like uh, Harmona Barico and other very specialized meat products. So we're really starting to see that diversity show up in the products that are created. And a lot of that has to do not only with taste, but also with the drivers that are around the world. So many of the economic drivers and logistical drivers around Meat production come from a lot of different places. One is, of course, the drive for tech innovation and tech funding, like the U.S. tends to have, but also food security. So countries that are small that like to produce their own foods, so the Netherlands, Singapore, and others, have definite drivers that are pretty unique to them because of their geographic constraints. So we see all sorts of interesting factors at play when it comes to which countries are really enthusiastic about this space. Yeah, and I think we all benefit from that. One great point that you brought up is the the diversity of end products as well. So I mean, specifically focusing on cultivated meat, as we are, you mentioned Vow Foods in Australia that's producing these kind of really interesting, diverse, like kangaroo meat, etc. Also heritage meats in Spain, Hamoni, Berico. I think a lot of this stems from, you know, I think the the diversity even of cause areas that people care about when they come into the space. So, you know, at GFI, for instance, we have a mix of folks that are coming into our organization because of sustainability, because they care about climate change, because they care about public health, especially during the pandemic, we're seeing increased focus on our space, of course. And then, of course, there's food security uh, and there's animal welfare, too. But uh, in many cases, people who are entering the space are just uh, meat lovers who want to, who want to make meat better. They, they recognize that meat is delicious. It's culturally entrenched. Uh, it has heritage but it has serious impacts on the planet. And so that's something that a lot of people, including the first person, Dr. Mark Post, who cooked and ate his cultivated lamb burger live on TV in 2013. Even he's a meat lover that just wants to make meat a lot better, right? Exactly. And I think that's one of the great things that connects. There are a couple of great things that connect people in the cellular agriculture space in general. 
One is we tend to love food. I feel like everyone in this space loves food. They know that it's important. They know it's an important part of the world and culture. So that's one really big uniting force. And the other is that we see that food can make a difference. So that we're doing something that is meaningful and that it something that can change lives. So regardless of who you talk to, I mean, one of the first questions I always ask people who are interested in cellular agriculture or who I work with is, what's your favorite food? Because everyone has good answers. I've never met someone who didn't have a good answer to that question. And I think that just speaks to how amazing food is in so many contexts, cultural, logistical, animal rights, sustainability, economic, it just goes on. Food is terribly important and it's important for so many reasons that, yeah, I mean, that's one thing I've loved seeing recently too, as investors, other individuals, there's not one uniting factor other than we all know food is important and we value it greatly. So yeah, it's a very exciting time. I feel like people are starting to realize for one of the first times that there are new ways to do things and there are new ways to harness this appreciation for food and its value in really technical and scientific ways to make something that we've never made before. Yep, of course, and there's you know a long way still to go, but on that exciting note, we're going to take a quick break here on Feeding 10 Billion. We'll be back afterward to talk with Dr. Kate Kruger. Welcome back to this special episode of Feeding 10 Billion, where we're talking about cultivated meat and the XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion competition with Dr. Kate Kruger. Kate, let's talk science, a topic I think you know a little bit about. Now, listeners of Feeding 10 Billion will know that cultivated meat has several technology elements. There's the cell lines from the animal whose meat we're producing, the cell culture medium, which nourishes the cells as it would inside the body of the animal. And then, you know, scaffolds for 3D structuring if we're producing a thick cut of meat. And then there's, of course, the cultivator, the vessel inside which the meat is produced. Now, Kate, I'm going to ask you a broad question, which I take it we could dive into each of these areas for a very long time. But what would you say are the biggest unsolved problems within each of these? And, uh, you know, when it comes to an exercise like Feed the Next Billion from XPRIZE, how could these be targeted by different teams across the world? Definitely. So... The top challenge I'd say across the board is that while most of the technology for cell-based meat has already been developed for smaller biomedical contexts, very little of it has been developed for the kind of bulk applications and low costs required for cell-based meat. So while a cell-based meat product does not need to be as pure or heavily regulated as, for instance, a tissue implant that a human might need, we do need to be able to buy it at reasonable prices and be able to buy it over time in a way that lets companies make money. So that's a huge challenge. It requires, in many cases, new research and development to reformulate many parts of the tissue growing and tissue harvesting process. One of the most challenging right now is the issue of getting cell growth medium, the medium that nourishes the cells down to a reasonable cost that is compatible with traditional meat manufacture in terms of final price point of product. So that's a huge challenge right now. That's, I'd say, the number one challenge. The number two challenge is purely scaling no one has really scaled mammalian cell culture to the volume that's been required before. So 
that involves a couple challenges. One, mammalian cell culture in general is very expensive, even if you're only trying to make burgers or meatballs. And then if you're thinking about making something like a steak or a cutlet that has a bite to it or something you can chew or cut, the challenges get even greater because you have to think about what you'd grow the cells on. And cells don't like growing directly on top of each other. At a certain point, they can't get enough oxygen that way. So this material called a scaffold becomes more and more important. Uh, and that even gets into physics and some of these other material sciences questions, in addition to all the biochemistry and bioengineering. So that will be the next frontier once we get the cultured media challenge under control. And XPRIZE is shooting for both of those. So reasonable price point, reasonable growth medium cost. And then on top of that, a means to get a structured product such as a cutlet or a filet. So it's a tall order and it's definitely something that's very few companies are targeting right now. Yeah. And that's why we're glad to, I mean, you know, work together on this XPRIZE, I think, because there are these fundamental problems that are worth solving. Kate, let me play devil's advocate here for a second, which is obviously, you know, a thing that we want to do is to include all perspectives in the future of food. This seems like a lot of scientific gymnastics to get to a product that already exists, right? Uh, animal meat already exists. This is me, me being devil's, devil's advocate, by the way. Animal meat already exists. We're doing all of this scientific work that seems quite difficult. You know, could we just kind of reiterate why this is even important to do? And from a historical standpoint, I think it's important to understand as well, a lot of the scientific, like agri-science gymnastics that went into even scaling up animal agriculture in its early days, or at least over the last hundred years, let's say. Uh, could you speak a little bit to those things? Sure, definitely. And I'll even take it a step further, which is another question I get from a lot of people, which is, why are we doing this when the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger and other plant-based products are so good? And that's another quite valid question at this day and age, because they are really good. Meat is very delicious for what it's worth. Plant-based burgers are very, very good too. So a lot of people kind of say, well, you know, if, if I can say drastically reduce the amount of meat I eat, and when I'm not doing that, eat plant-based or just eat plant-based, it's clear that it's a little hard to make the case today for cultured meat, which is why in general I don't. I think today it's pretty clear that the plant-based options are excellent and the best that we can really do at this point in history. But that said, I think the difference is going to come at the next stage, which is when we actually can scale cellular agriculture products. And the reason I say that is even at the point where we can make a cell-based burger or meatball, where we have enough cells in the product, we're going to be able to do a lot more things than just have a burger or meatball. We're going to be able to have molecular level control over those cells in many respects that we wouldn't normally have with a traditional meat product. So you could think about adding different things to the cell growth medium to make the cells have different properties. You could think about adding different nutrients to the initial cell cultures to get the cells to take different forms or shapes. You could think about controlling different mechanisms for manufacture that let you have other different parameters. You could even think about changing the DNA of these cells so that they produce 
more healthy compounds than average meat would ever be able to make. So once you've gone to the trouble of getting to a point where you can scale this technology, the sky's the limit. Until you get there, it's a completely valid point that plant-based is amazing. So I would never argue with the argument that plant-based is amazing today, that normal meat is delicious today and very hard to beat. But what I would say is I think there's a lot of potential for tomorrow to have products that are uh, truly transformational and better than either of those options. Yeah, I love that, Kate. And I, I mean, there's so many threads to pick up on from what you said. I also want to identify that, you know, I think there's a lot of exciting developments in the cultivated meat field where there's several companies, you can name a few of them, Cubic, Nourish Ingredients, Mission Barns out in California, who are focusing only on cultivating animal fat and who are focusing on then selling that cultivated animal fat, which again, as we all know, listeners will know that cultivated animal fat is 100% biologically identical to animal fat that you'd get from like from pork or from beef, and then adding that to the plant-based burger. So you'd have a plant-based burger that is 100% plant-based with the exception of the fat, which is from animal sources. And the fat being something that, I mean, if you think of meat, if you eat meat, Fat is something that makes your mouth water, right? It's something that lends that exquisite marbling or that exquisite mouthfeel. If, if you love meat, you'll know what I'm talking about. So there's that possibility too, that the first products that hit the market that are from cultivated sources will in fact be hybrid products. They'll be along this spectrum of plant-based and cultivated. So, you know, it's not as if these categories necessarily need to compete against each other. And the way that we think about it, I think is in terms of food's subjectivity, 10 years from now, well, hopefully 10 years from now, I'll be able to, you know, wake up in the morning and have something for breakfast that's from cultivated sources, in the afternoon have something that's made from plant-based sources 100%. Even, I would say, indigenous plant-based sources like millets, if I'm sitting in India, like a plant-based chicken nugget that's made from millets, that would be really cool. And then at dinner again, I could have something else, right? And that's really exciting. And I think in terms of technology and technology gymnastics, you know, Kate, we all know this. The reason that we're here right now is because we've moved very far away from natural agricultural systems globally anyway. We've hit these biological limits of what we can do with farm animals and it's causing a lot of issues to the planet. And that's why we're doing things like the Prize Feed the Next Billion because we absolutely need to transition away to a better food system. Agreed. Yeah, it's there's so many reasons to get into this space. And, and to your point, it's not clear entirely that we can extend the biological limits of traditional animal agriculture much further than we already have. So the necessity of doing this is even greater. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for demystifying some of the science behind what's going on. I think you know a lot of this has to do with even social comfort, social license and regulatory advancement. These are major pieces of the path to market or the path to our plates. As it is for anything novel, you mentioned Singapore earlier. They recently became the first country in the world to approve cultivated meat for sale in December 2020. And we worked for over three years with their government before they even had a food regulator, an official food regulator in place. We were working with them to chart a path to market. And equally, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, also became the first head of government to try cultivated meat in the same month, December 2020, along with our GFI Israel counterparts. And he indicated that the government would throw its support behind the sector. Now, where do you think we go from here? Like, what is your prediction for how many governments will have approved cultivated meat for sale? Let's say by the time this X price feed the next billion is concluded in four years, 
And how do we ensure that all stakeholders are represented in that decision? That's a really hard question to answer because governments, as you know, move the way they do and definitely have their own processes in terms of speed. That said, I think it's very, very promising that Singapore has already approved these products. And it speaks to the ability of food conscious countries that maybe fear food insecurity that this regulation can move very quickly. In a number of other regions, this may be complicated by different factors. The EU, of course, has very stringent guidelines around when genetically modified organisms can be present in a product. That does change a lot of the logistics around lab-grown meat. It doesn't prevent the production of all products, but it does change the technologies that companies can use. And that will be a challenge for that space in addition to whatever regulation ends up coming down on the books. In the U.S., the exciting piece of news is that the U.S. government has started these conversations and started them, in fact, as early as a couple of years ago, which is really promising. That said, it's going to take a while, partially because of this interesting co-regulatory framework that's been set up in the U.S. So prior to meat harvest, or as long as the meat product is pre-bioreactor and has not yet been harvested from a bioreactor, that process is going to be governed by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. And then post-harvest, it's going to be regulated by the USDA. So the USDA tends to regulate a variety of other animal meat regulation for meat products derived from a whole animal. And because of that co-regulatory framework, that may add a number of steps along the way that will have to be accounted for. And it's hard to say yet exactly what that will look like. That said, a fair number of government offices have gotten involved in making this process start, and they're clearly taking it seriously. So I do have faith that at some point that change will occur, but it's hard to say when. I have heard as well that many countries will fall behind the U.S. or the EU once those pronouncements come down. So it's likely that that may lead to a sea change in many countries. But other than that, it's, uh, those are the major regulatory changes that I am aware of. But change is happening every day around the world on this as products become more and more common. So I think it's a matter of wait and see. Once there's enough public demand for these products, I suspect that regulation will quickly follow. Yeah. And the point that you made about the co-regulatory arrangement in the U.S., I think it's complicated further by the fact that the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the USDA, and the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, as you mentioned, they actually split up seafood between themselves as well. So seafood has its own split jurisdiction between those two agencies. And like you said, governments are complex. They're complex in many In most cases, they're complex for a reason, right? And um, some of the countries where action can happen faster, like Singapore and Israel, they're driven by urgent and pressing and massive food security risks, like you mentioned earlier in the conversation. And yeah, from our perspective, we're also seeing, in addition to the US, we're also seeing countries like Japan looking at this, at least taking a look, if not giving any pronouncement on when they might allow it for sale in the marketplace. But these are really exciting times. And Kate, moving on to the second part of that question, in terms of representing everyone in the future of food, could you identify some stakeholder groups 
that you see as really important to giving their input to this kind of thing before it proliferates out into society and how regulation happens and accounts for those things? Definitely. So I'd say the good news on this is that many of those parties are already involved. So certainly the regulators of food production should be heavily involved as they are in Singapore and also in the U.S. So that's a very important part of the puzzle. It is important on some level that farmers and traditional meat producers play a role in this process as well. Ideally, all of these players are able to get involved in the new food production of the future. Certainly having people fall out of work, especially work that does involve with food security, is not ideal. And ideally, these individuals and corporations would be able to stay in this space in a way that allows for the development of multiple food streams, plant-based, cell-based, possibly others as well, to make sure that we don't have the one food stream that we've had in the past. So with COVID, for instance, many people have been reliant on one source of meat or one source of protein. And when that source has challenges, everyone gets very alarmed. But if our systems have higher levels of redundancy, as they well might with plant protein and cell-based meat, it's quite possible that could change the game a lot. So in that sense, all consumers around the world are stakeholders in this. And as they continue to purchase products and change how the market works, uh, we'll see various changes in how regulators and others, manufacturers take these uh, products. Yeah. And those are such great points as well about the resilience of our protein supply, especially during COVID-19. We've seen many of the meatpacking facilities in places like the US, Europe, Australia come to a standstill because during outbreaks it's difficult. I mean, those meatpacking facilities have been amplification points for COVID-19 spread as well. We see similar stuff happening. I mean, African swine fever decimating uh, something like half of the pig population in China, which means like a quarter of the global pig population, which is huge. And then also avian flu in India and all of that. The resilience of our current protein supply is definitely in question right now. So beyond regulatory approval, Kate, what additional milestones do you think a technology like cultivated meat will need to hit as a category before it's truly ubiquitous? So for example, you know, we mentioned Singapore was the first country to approve it for sale in the marketplace. The company Eat Just with their chicken bites has launched in that market. It's just the, the first one, in, but there'll be many more in the pipeline, of course. And then once, you know, the CEO of Eat Just, Josh Tetrick said, once this reaches the consumer's plate, it's no longer a debate about science, right? It's dinner, it's food, it's culture, it's things that we're talking about. And for that to be truly ubiquitous, what are some other milestones that we need to hit beyond regulatory approval? Definitely. So I'd say there are two answers to that question that go back to one. And that one, I would say, is we need to figure out how to make the tech to make these products much cheaper and much more accessible. So many types of the underlying technology that are required for this process either do not exist or are not made available to many of the potential meat producers. And because of that, production costs skyrocket. And even production at scale will, will likely be very expensive. So, which leads to the second question, which is price point. 
price point is the second, I'd say, biggest consideration in this space. And you really can't even address that unless you address the price points of the underlying technology. So those two go together. Even the Eat Just Chicken Bites, very, very exciting products. Because of challenges in the underlying technology, those chicken bites did contain animal-derived products. So even in that case, we have not been able to obtain vegan chicken bites through cellular agriculture, not to mention that the price point was in double digits in the U.S. dollar range. So that's not really commonly accessible or available to your average consumer either. So in some ways, Eat Just is a great example of where we need to go next. We need to get to the point where those technologies that allow Eat Just to exist are available. And then beyond that, we need to get them cost-effective enough that those products can be in not only fancy restaurants, but also in convenience stores and other fast food joints. Yeah, absolutely. And totally agreed. And by the way, I think that all of that extends out to all categories of alternative protein or smart protein. It, um, it extends to plant-based, right? We're talking about taste and, taste and price as the ultimate enablers. And of course, even fermentation-derived proteins, everything that emerges from this space, because ultimately we're trying to enable you know, people to eat better for themselves, for the planet, for the future. And we can't put all the burden of that on them to buy an extremely expensive product, et cetera. So these are exciting times. We're hoping that technology development and things like the XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion competition will really take things to the next level in terms of driving that cost parity and taking us through to 2050, feeding 10 billion people securely, sustainably, and justly. So I have a question for you lastly, Kate, which is a question we ask everyone who comes on Feeding 10 Billion. How do you think we'll be eating in 2050? Wow, 2050 is a while from now. So if we're going to go almost 30 years into the future, there will probably be a lot of changes. I bet we're going to have food that is healthier, that is more nourishing, that leads people to be able to make better choices with their food. I bet also there will be products that are even more delicious and possibly more dangerous in terms of overconsumption. We could have products that are worse than, you know, in the U.S., Twinkies or other junk foods. It's quite possible even cell egg products may be so delicious, they're craveable to a fault. But I also think we have that potential to create foods that are medicines almost, that may help healthy bacteria grow in people's guts or may help them make healthier food choices in terms of satiation or bioavailable nutrients. So I think the sky's the limit. We've got a lot of time between now and then. And with so many people working on these technologies, it's hard to say exactly where it will go or how fast, but I have a lot of hope that it will go some really interesting places. Yeah, that's incredibly exciting. I'm hoping to be on a beach with my grandkids, maybe. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we've, we've made ourselves obsolete by then, by kind of catalyzing a, a shift or a transformation along with our colleagues and our counterparts. So this is really exciting stuff. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining us on Feeding 10 Billion. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and getting to know you. Of course. Wonderful to talk with you too, Varun. It's been an honor. I really appreciate uh, having the chance to share this time. Thank you again for inviting me on. The famous saying goes, we tend to overestimate what can happen in two years and underestimate what can happen in 10. I think we also tend to gloss over the tremendous amounts of work that goes into building game-changing innovation for a better world. 
If we're going to look back in 10 years at a successful decade in smart protein, there's plenty of work still to do. We need more talent, resources, and support to safeguard this beautiful planet. And what a delight it is to work with our partners on the XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion to try and make this a reality. It's also a delight supporting entrepreneurs like MyoWorks, the third Indian team to advance to the XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion semifinals. MyoWorks is a Pune, India-based startup conducting research in scaffolds for cultivated meat development, which, as Dr. Kruger said, is an essential technology element for cultivated meat. Founder Shubhankar Takle was inspired to start the company at GFI India's summit in 2018, and we've been working with his team ever since to support their progress. Whatever the future holds, this is the kind of enterprising innovation we need to push back against climate change and future pandemics and feed the next billion. To appropriate Ernest Hemingway, when people look back in the future and ask how a more secure, sustainable, and just protein supply was built, Perhaps we'll be able to say, gradually, then suddenly. This is Varun Deshpande signing off on this episode of Feeding 10 Billion. For more information, you can visit us at gfi.org.in and you can also go to xprize.org for more information on Feed the Next Billion. You can also follow us on social media at The Good Food Institute India, on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever you get your social media fix. And of course, if you like this podcast, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM Podcasts app or on ivmpodcasts.com. You can also follow us on our social media. We are at IVM Podcasts on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to reach me, you can find me at VarunD7 on Twitter and at Varun5 on Instagram. Take care and we'll see you soon.